As G.K. Chesterton said, a dead thing can go with the stream, but only a living thing can go against it. Here on Swimming Upstream, we go against the cultural stream by championing life, liberty, and the pursuit of holiness. Your host is Eric Sammons, author of seven books, including Holiness for Everyone, The Old Evangelization, and Bitcoin Basics. Now let's get swimming. Welcome to episode 87 of Swimming Upstream. I'm Eric Sammons. Well, this episode is going to be posted on January 18th, which this year is the date of the annual March for Life, the pro-life, uh, the pro-life movement's biggest uh, gathering, I think you'd say, each year. Usually hundreds of thousands of people go to Washington, D.C., and there's also various marches for life in other areas of the country as well. And, of course, it's this time of year because... It commemorates the Roe v. Wade decision to happen on January 22nd, many years ago, too many years ago, uh, that basically legalized abortion throughout the country. Uh, and with another decision, Doe v. Bolton, it also made it legal throughout the nine months of pregnancy throughout the country. A tragic decision, probably the worst, it is the worst Supreme Court decision in history. Uh, you know, it, it ranks up there with Dred Scott and other terrible decisions. But what I wanted to talk about today wasn't uh, necessarily the, the, the terribleness of abortion and how, how awful uh, Roe v. Wade is and our country's embrace of legalized abortion. Uh, all those things are awful and topics for a good discussion. But what I want to discuss is some, a, a good that has come out of the pro-life movement. Of course, the pro-life movement has not achieved its goal yet. It has not made uh, abortion illegal in this country and more than just illegal, unthinkable in this country. However, it has had victories in the past. There have been uh, definitely many babies who have been saved through the actions of the pro-life movement, and that's each single baby that's been saved is a wonderful thing and something to be very thankful for. But it's also had some goods that have come out of it. The pro-life movement has had some goods that come out of it that are somewhat, might be a little surprising and not what you'd expect and not really the purpose of the pro-life movement. And I'm thinking first and foremost about the fact that many people, myself included, have come into the Catholic Church because of the pro-life movement. Just this week, I had an article posted on Catholic Answers website. I'll link to it in the show notes called How the Pro-Life Movement Made Me Catholic. Because my story of my conversion to Catholicism from an evangelical Protestant is very much tied into my involvement in the pro-life movement. I can't separate one from the other. And so I told my story a little bit there, and I, I've told my story before uh, of my conversion. I, I've been on the journey home with Marcus Grodi. I'll link to that as well in the show notes, and I, I've written a, a more in-depth uh, explanation of why I converted to Catholicism, and there's a lot of reasons why I converted to Catholicism, and I encourage you to read those articles and watch that video uh, that you'll find on the show notes. And by the way, all, all show notes for all the different podcasts I do can be found on my website. It's just ericsammons.com slash podcast and then slash the number of the, uh, the, of the episode. So, for example, the show notes for this one is ericsammons.com slash podcast slash 87. And you can find a list of all the podcasts on my website as well if you, if you want to go back and look at some of the previous ones. But specifically, what I wanted to talk about today was how my involvement in the pro-life movement was a major factor in me becoming Catholic. 
Now, for those who don't know, I grew up as a, a practicing uh, Protestant Christian. I was a member of my family, a member of the United Methodist Church. And in, in high school, I had a conversion experience in which I gave my life to the Lord. And I became a very, uh, I guess you, from the outside, you, you call me a devout Protestant evangelical Christian. I, I always hate using the word devout for myself because I always feel like that seems kind of weird to call yourself devout. But I think people on the outside probably call me that because I was just, I was very serious about my faith as, as a high school student, my evangelical Protestant faith. And so when I went off to college, I went to a, a large uh, public university in, in Ohio, Miami University in Oxford, Ohio. I, I went there eager, I guess you'd call it, I was eager to change the world for Christ. I was very enthusiastic, like I said, about my faith, but I wanted to, to, to change lives through it. And so when I got to campus, I, I wanted to find something that would help me to do that, an organization, a group. I, I joined a couple different groups. I, I was a member of Campus Crusade for Christ, which is a, a very large evangelical group. Uh, I became involved in that my freshman year. I also I, I looked into some political groups and didn't really that didn't really stick with me. Uh, my relationship with politics is always a, a love hate relationship, which usually is on the hate side. I also joined another group called Navigators, which is a smaller organization, not as well known as Campus Crusade for Christ, but it's also an evangelical parachurch organization they call it because it's not really a, a church itself. So they want to give it some formality, I guess, call it a parachurch. But the truth is, nothing that didn't really scratch my itch, so to speak, to to uh, change the world in, 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 a, in a great way. I didn't feel like either of them really did that. Then, near the end of my freshman year, my sister, who's also a student, uh, my older sister, who's also a student at the same at Miami University with me, she invited me to attend a meeting of the campus pro-life group. I think she was at the time she was dating the president of the group or something like that, and you know she's pro-life too. And so I said, oh, what the heck, I'll go. And I basically, that, that didn't really do a whole bunch for me. Yeah, I went to a meeting or two, I think, at the end of my freshman year. But when I came back my sophomore year, I got more involved with the pro-life movement in, in the pro-life group. In fact, I dove in head first. I, I, the, the reality of the evil of abortion really came to me and, and became very clear to me, I guess you would say. Before that, I really just thought of uh, abortion as a political issue, just like you know, balancing the budget or uh, the space program, you know, whether we should spend money on that, stuff like that. It wasn't really anything other than just a political issue. But my involvement in the pro-life group at my sophomore year really got me to see that this is a terrible crime. This is one of the worst uh, things going on. It, it is, it's a Holocaust. I mean, there's no other word for it. Uh, millions of innocent children are being killed and millions of mothers are being victimized but not realizing what's going on. And so I became very active in the pro-life group. Now, here was the thing. There was a small group of very active members in the pro-life group. I'd say maybe a half a dozen to a dozen people, depending on the year and, you know, the time of year and stuff like that. And I was the only Protestant, however, in the group. Everybody else was a practicing Catholic. And so this made for, at first, it was, I didn't even really notice it. I don't know if anybody really noticed it at first. But it started to become more clear as we did more activities. For example, when we went to the abortion clinic, by the way, this was in the early 1990s at the height of the uh, rescue movement when people were getting arrested and things like that in front of abortion clinics for nonviolently, peacefully uh, demonstrating there. 
But when we go to the abortion clinic just to pray outside, I would, you know, the group would usually come together and pray, pray a rosary, very natural thing for Catholics to do, especially in an abortion clinic. However, of course, I didn't pray the rosary, and so I would kind of stand off to the side and look through my, my pocket Bible if I brought it or just maybe pray in my head or something like that. And, of course, on Sundays when most of the pro-life group, uh, which we were becoming fa- very quickly some of my best friends, they would go to Mass, I would go to the local evangelical church. And so there was this distance between me and the rest of them, although I will say they embraced me completely as a, as a fellow pro-lifer. I, was never, I never felt like I wasn't a, uh, a full member of the pro-life group because of the fact I was the only evangelical Protestant who's really involved. There were other evangelical Protestants who were involved on some level with the pro-life group, but not as active as I was, not in the inner circle that was kind of running the group. Now, of course, we, being in college gives you a lot of time to sit around and debate and discuss. I mean, that's, that's kind of what you're supposed to do in college. And that, of course, happened to me. And, and because I was so involved in the pro-life group, like I said, these, these people became, uh, the, other, the other active member became my closest friends. My, my roommate was another member of the uh, uh, pro-life group, Catholic, of course, um, a, a girl who would eventually become my wife was a, was a member. And so these people were all, all good friends of mine. So we'd sit around and discuss different topics like you do in college. And it might be, you know, I remember my roommate and I, we'd fight about who we like better, the Ohio State Buckeyes or the Indiana Hoosiers. And now we were in Ohio. I was from Ohio. He's from Ohio. And he thought I was simply a traitor to Ohio by the fact that I liked the Indiana Hoosiers better. I was a Bobby Knight fan. And so I, I, I you know, I'm not going to apologize for that, but it was kind of weird that we get in such uh, hard, uh, fights about that. But I guess that's what college students do. But, of course, one of the things that we debate and discuss more than anything was the differences between Protestant and Catholics and what we believe. And th- this would take place on a very natural level. Like, I might say something. Like, for example, one time I remember s- stating to one of my, another roommate I had. I had a couple roommates who were in the pro-life group. Another roommate, I mentioned to him that, you know, I believed in once saved, always saved. That's the doctrine that once you receive Jesus into your life as, a, as your Savior— you're guaranteed salvation. And, you know, I, I just accepted that. And, I, and the, the funny thing is, I was very naive at the time. I, I just thought all Christians believe that. I didn't really have a great knowledge of the totality of different Christian beliefs over time and, and people who say they're Christian, what they, what they teach. Didn't know anything about Catholicism at all other than that, you know, they, they went to Mass sometimes on Saturday nights. I mean, that was about the extent of what I knew about Catholicism. But when I mentioned that I was, uh, I believe, once saved, always saved, he, of course, as a Catholic, just said, well, I I think that's false. And it just was shocking to me. That was my first, this was very early in my sophomore year, my first real realization that there were some fundamental differences. Now, of course, not all evangelical Protestants believe in once saved, always saved. And I, I came to realize that, too, later. But it was, that was, I remember that was the first real discussion we got in. But then I got into many more discussions about Catholicism, about its teachings, because the more I learned about Catholicism, the more I thought it was an aberrant uh, religion, frankly, be- at first, because I would hear things like about purgatory. I would think, you know, I'd see how they, uh, how Catholics treated the Blessed Virgin Mary. I'd hear about transubstantiation. All these beliefs were very foreign to me. And so, although I'd never been, I'd never grown up as anti-Catholic, and I was very thankful my parents weren't anti-Catholic or anything like that, 
it was so strange to me, these beliefs, they were so different from what I was used to hearing when I went to church that it really did kind of throw me for a loop for a while. And so th- this, was, this continued on, but what happened was is that these debates, as they went on, I started to see that uh, the, the, the beliefs were reasonable, if nothing else. I remember, for example, the idea of praying to saints. My initial reaction, like most Protestants, when I first realized this is what that Catholics pray to saints, was immediately to reject it and to say it's unscriptural and it was clearly wrong to do. How could you pray to a saint? You, you can only pray to God, to Jesus. And so, but the more I understood the doctrine of the intercession of the saints, the more I recognized, even as a Protestant, that there was really nothing wrong with this. It at least makes logical sense that you're simply, just like we ask people on earth, other Christians, we ask them to pray for us. Well, you're simply asking somebody, a, a Christian in heaven, to pray for you. And frankly, that's probably more powerful than the prayers of somebody on earth because they're more close, they're closer to God. And so this made a lot of sense to me. Now, I didn't start practicing that, that uh, of intercession of the saints. I didn't start start praying to saints because of that. But at least I realized, okay, this isn't some far-out, anti-Christian, horror Babylon, crazy belief or anything like that. And the same thing with purgatory. I remember that with purgatory. Purgatory wasn't that big of an obstacle for me when I heard about purgatory. I, at first, of course, I rejected it. But then the more I, I, I learned about it, I thought, okay, this makes sense that when we die, we need to be cleansed of those attachments to sin that we have on this earth. And maybe it's instantaneous. I think as a process, I remember thinking, well, purgatory, if it exists, it's probably just an instantaneous thing that, that doesn't last very long, if, if even noticeably long. But it's the idea that you're getting cleansed to be in the presence of the all-holy God. And so this would happen where I would just start to accept at least as reasonable various positions of the Catholic Church. And I remember we'd have these debates a lot of times driving to the abortion, the, abor- the closest abortion clinic to us was about an hour away up in Dayton. So we'd drive up to Dayton and we would pray in front of that abortion clinic. And well, during the drive, we had some, they had to talk about stuff, right? And a lot of times after we, we, we pray at the abortion clinic, we'd go out to grab dinner or something like that. And we'd talk, we could talk more there. And like I said, I had a roommate that was, roommates that were Catholic, uh, one roommate in particular I had for a couple, uh, he was a roommate my sophomore and junior year. He and I were getting a lot of discussions. We had a good relationship where we could debate things without hating each other, so to speak. You know, we, we could really get into it. Although, you know, we would annoy each other greatly. I think we'd both admit that. And, and you know, we were 20 you know, 20, 21, 20, 20, 21 years old, we weren't exactly the most mature people yet. And so probably our arguments weren't always on the highest levels of argumentation, but it was a great opportunity for me to really learn about the Catholic faith. And, and needless to say, I was defending the evangelical faith. It wasn't all one side. I was trying to convince my Catholic friends why the evangelicals were, were and Protestantism was right. Now, during this time, as I got more and more involved with pro-life work, at the same time, I got more and more uncomfortable with my own Protestant denomination. As I mentioned, I grew up in the United Methodist Church. Now, a lot of people might, like Catholics particularly, might not understand the differences between the different denominations and what's evangelical, things like that. Evangelical is not a denomination. It's more of a generic term for a type of Protestant. And that type of Protestant can be involved in, uh, can be members of different denominations. Typically, they're going to be involved in certain denominations, I should say, are more receptive to evangelicals than others. Like, for example, being a member of the Presbyterian Church, they don't have as many evangelicals or the Episcopal Church, whereas 
the non-denominational churches are much more likely to have evangelicals. Fact is, United Methodist Church didn't have a, a lot of evangelicals at the time, but our the church I grew up in was was had evangelical leanings, and so that's how I why I consider myself an evangelical. An evangelical really the term just means somebody who uh, is fervent in their faith and wants to share it with others. This is probably a good way to put it. It's not it, it, it usually very conservative as well. Not a mainline Protestant like the United Methodist Church is a mainline denomination, which usually means it tends to be liberal. Whereas evangelicals tend to be more conservative. But being a mainline denomination, you know, Methodist Church, what I discovered was, and I kind of knew this beforehand, but I, I really, it hit me, was that it was officially pro-abortion. This is, again, 19, early 1990s. I believe they've actually gone and become more pro-life over the years since then. I haven't followed it that closely, but I remember seeing headlines about that recently in the past few years. But at the time... It, it, the United Methodist Church taught that abortion could be justified, that it could be moral in certain situations, which I knew at this time, being very involved in the pro-life movement, how that's, that's just simply unacceptable. That is not a uh, legitimate position for a Christian church to have. And so I knew I wanted to leave the United Methodist Church. But the question became, what denomination do I want to join? I, I of, of course, was only looking at Protestant denominations at the time. Uh, but what, what Protestant denomination did I want to join? So I started to explore different Protestant denominations to determine, okay, once I graduate from college and I move to whatever town I'm going to live in and I'm looking for a new church home, which one would I pick? Would I become a Presbyterian? Would I become a Southern Baptist? Would I become an Episcopal? What, what would I become? Evangelical. I remember Evangelical Free was the name of a denomination I was very interested in at the time. I actually used the term Evangelical in its name, which probably would attract it to me. But what I, but the problem was, and this is where my, my real problem came to a head, is that I realized that even if I chose a Protestant denomination that was pro-life at the time, what was to keep it from changing in the future? So, for example, I was very interested at this time also in the Southern Baptists because they were unabashedly pro-life. They were very pro-Jesus. <laughs> they loved to, they proclaimed Jesus. They're very conservative. I liked all that about the Southern Baptists. However, in my research, I found that the Southern Baptists, early on in the 1970s when Roe v. Wade first became law, they were actually pro-abortion. It wasn't until a movement within the Southern Baptist denomination happened in the late 70s, early 80s, that they switched positions and became very pro-life, which good for them. I'm very glad that they did that, and I, I commend them for that because most denominations went the other way. Most denominations went from pro-life to pro-abortion. They went from pro-abortion to pro-life, so good for them. But here's the problem. What's to keep the Southern Baptists from changing in the future? This is my, what my 1991, 1992 self was asking. What's to keep them from changing? And if, if, if they could change on something as fundamental as abortion, morally fundamental, what's to keep them from changing theologically as well? What's to keep them from changing, for example, their position on what baptism is, uh, what it means to be a Christian, all these, the Trinity, who knows, all these fundamental teachings. What's to keep a denomination from changing? Because really it was a political situation where, depending on who is in charge, that's what, what it would teach. And this bothered me because I didn't want to change from United Methodist Church to another denomination and then have to change again a few years later. I wanted a church that taught the truth and always taught the truth and would always teach the truth. That's what I wanted. That's what I desired. I felt like that was, should be something that a Christian could expect. Why not? Why should a Christian, a follower of Christ, 
be part of a group that could change its beliefs to become non-Christian, basically, like you know, any pro-abortion one would be not is, is a non-Christian position. And so I just didn't want to have to deal with that. I just didn't think that was that was something that should be required of a Christian. But the problem is, when I looked at every single Protestant denomination in existence, I, the same question would arise: What's to keep them from changing in the future? Just a, a, some political process. Well, during this time, as I wrestled with this problem, this was a real serious problem for me. I, I, I don't want to. Uh, I can't overstate how much this bothered me. It was like really almost an existential crisis for me because. Well, I never doubted the lordship of Jesus Christ and the fact that he was uh, both God and man and that he, you know, he was necessary for salvation and all of those things, the basic fundamentals of Christianity, the mere Christianity, as C.S. Lewis would call it. I did begin to doubt whether or not there was some type of group that I could, that I could worship him and follow him in that, would be, that was his church, to put it bluntly. And so at this time... I remember going to my, my pro-life uh, Catholic roommate and asking him, how do you know that the Catholic Church won't change its position on abortion in the future? I mean, the question I was struggling with as a Protestant, I want to know how, how do Catholics resolve it? And when I, I remember I was on a sidewalk at Miami. I think I can remember what street it was on. I can't remember the name of the street, but I can picture exactly where it was. This is how big a deal this, how much this impacted me. I remember standing there. I think it was in the spring because it was decent weather. And I asked him this, and he just looked at me like I was insane. Like the question was just nonsensical. It was just simply inconceivable. It was like a four-sided triangle to him. He just couldn't conceive the question even. And so after a pause and this, this look he gave me, he just said, fully confident, said, it just won't. It just won't change its position on abortion. Now... I hyped up that this, you know, this this question, you know, how much I remember and all that. But obviously, that might be a little bit of a letdown to people. Like, well, not very good apologetics. You could talk about, you know, as a Catholic. Now I know I, I might have answered very differently. I might have said, well, we know this because of Christ's promise to Peter that upon this rock you will build this church, and the gates of hell won't prevail against it. And we see this in the infallibility of the church and the Pope. Blah 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 blah. Well, he took a more direct approach and just said it was a stupid question, essentially, without saying that. What's amazing is how much of a profound impact that had on me. The fact is, is that that really resonated with me, his full confidence, because that was my problem. I didn't have confidence in any Protestant denomination that it wouldn't change one day. He had full confidence. And he was not only confident that it always had taught, taught this about abortion, but it always will teach about the immorality of abortion. And if you look at the history of the church and look at Christian teaching, you'll see that that has been consistent. In the first century, there's a document, a Catholic document called the Didache. It's probably, it might be the earliest non-scriptural Christian document we have. It's from the 70s, probably early 70s, 80s AD, and it condemns abortion as, as immoral. So the church is always opposed it and always will oppose it. And so this, this confidence that, that my friend had in the Catholic Church that wouldn't change its teaching really resonated with me. And I, want to, I think looking back on it, that was probably the moment, I didn't realize at the time consciously, but that was probably the moment when the Catholic Church became an option for me. Instead of just being just kind of this esoteric, weird church that I would have nothing to do with personally, but I respect in some ways, I think subconsciously that's when it started, I started to realize, okay, 
maybe the Catholic Church is for me. It was probably another year a year later before I finally uh, decided to become Catholic, but I think that was a big thing. And there's other factors, and like I said, you can watch my appearance on The Journey Home or read my, my longer article I'll, I'll put in the show notes about my conversion, because obviously that's not the only thing that brought me into the Catholic Church, but I think that was a big part of it. Now, one thing I, I, I just, I, I really take away from this a lot of uh, benefit on how to evangelize, because uh, as you may know, if you've listened to this podcast for, for a while or, or follow my writings, I like to, I, I like to talk about evangelization, and I, I, very th- I think evangelization is very important for the church. In fact, I wrote a whole book on it called The Old Evangelization uh, from Catholic Answers Press, and in that book, I talk a lot about these different experiences I had along with other people's experiences in, in evangelization and becoming Catholic. But I feel like I took three, I, I take three things in particular from my own experience of being not evangelizing, but being evangelized. Because that's basically what was happening is I was being evangelized. A lot of times as an evangelist, I want to talk about times I've evangelized others and what I learned from that, what we can learn from that. But really, you learn a lot more when you're being evangelized. And that's, I've learned, I learned more by evangelization from being evangelized than I did from all my years of evangelizing others. So what are the three things I took away from it? The first one is live your faith. And I know that might be a little bit cliched, but it's so true. The reason I was willing to listen to the Catholics, what they believed, is because I could tell very clearly that they loved Jesus. And as an evangelical Protestant, that was everything to me. If my Catholic friends in the pro-life group had not lived their faith, I would not have considered it even a possibility to become Catholic. Obviously, they were living their faith by being members of the pro-life group, first and foremost. But they did it in other ways. Well, I mean, they weren't perfect. I mean, they were college students who made mistakes and did dumb things and all that. But they clearly loved Jesus and wanted to follow him. And in fact, their, their work in the pro-life movement was a direct extension of their love for Christ. And so for me as an evangelical Protestant, that made it clear to me, okay, these guys are Christians just like I am. And so that made me more open to then later hear their, their arguments when we did have arguments. I didn't dismiss them out of hand as coming just from hypocrites. So the first principle is live your faith. The second principle of evangelization is share the faith. There's that stupid quote that is supposedly from St. Francis of Assisi, but it's not really. It goes against St. Francis of Assisi's whole life, which is, uh, oh my gosh, I'm, preach the gospel always when necessary, use words which is just a dumb saying, because I know the point of it. The point of it is that we're supposed to, what I said already, that you have to live the faith. That's how you preach the gospel. And it is true. You do live the faith like that. But it's always necessary to also use words. When you're asked, why did you live like this? You need to say it. And also, you need to, to share it with others sometimes without even being asked. If my Catholic friends in the pro-life group hadn't been willing to debate with me, discuss with me the Catholic faith, I would not have become Catholic. So it's very important that we share the faith. We talk about it. I know in our country we don't want, we never want to talk about, we're told never talk about politics or religion, but that's malarkey. Always be open to talking about your faith and finding ways to talk about it. So share your faith. That's number two. The third principle I think comes from this, uh, my own experiences, is that we must hold on to the truth. We must hold on to even those difficult truths. Over the past century, we've seen a huge decline in the number of uh, members of the different mainline Protestant denominations. 
And also, not coincidentally, that's also been the time in which the mainline Protestant denominations have abandoned most of the hard teachings of Christianity, particularly when it comes to moral matters. And, and so during this time, people, they, they, basically the idea is the mainline Protestant denomination idea, and many, many Catholics hold to this idea as well, is that we need to make the living the faith easier so it becomes more attractive. However, I would argue that it does the exact opposite. If a faith is easy, what is the purpose of it? Why bother with it? Why would I bother getting up on Sunday morning to hear a sermon that basically says the same thing I can find on watching television just at my house? Why bother going in there? The reason I would get up in the morning and go to church on a Sunday morning is because it's telling me something different. It's telling me I need to be better. I need to do, I, I need to be more than I, I think I am, more than the world tells me I am. And so it's only by embracing the hard truths of Christianity that I believe we attract people. In fact, I know that's what attracted me. If the Catholic Church had wavered on its position of abortion, I would have never become Catholic. It was because it stood so strong in the midst of so many Protestant denominations falling away that I, that I was attracted to Catholicism. At the same time, there were forces within the church saying, we need to tone down what we say about abortion because it's going to turn people away. The very fact that the church was proclaiming, Pope John Paul II particularly at this time, was proclaiming the truth about the immorality of abortion is what attracted me. And I know it attracted many others. I think people of goodwill who really want to follow Jesus, they're, they're turned off when, you, when a denomination waters down the truth. They want the fullness of the truth. They don't just want some, uh, some, some substitute that, that isn't the fullness of the truth. And so we must, as Catholics, if we want to evangelize, we need to hold on to those hard truths and not compromise them and know that by doing so, we're actually attracting people to the faith. Okay, well, that's, of course, that's a very short overview of my conversion and one aspect of why I became Catholic. But I just wanted to share it this year as, as we um, commemorate yet another um, anniversary of Roe v. Wade, and we should pray every year that this will be the last time we have to do this, that in the future Roe v. Wade will be overturned and abortion will be illegal. And like I said, and unthinkable in this country, that people don't, that women don't even think of abortion as an option when they become pregnant, but instead they see that bringing the child to term is the only real option that, that any woman could have. And so even though, however, the last thing I wanted to mention was that God always works for good. Even in horrible circumstances, we see that the, the most evil act ever done is the crucifixion. But also the greatest act, the most good act ever done is the crucifixion. Because it's evil because human beings, men, killed our Lord. But it's beautiful and good because our Lord gave himself up to save us from our sins. And so God always does this. You see this throughout Scripture and throughout salvation history, how God works through evil people and evil things for good. And I think that's happened here. Abortion is a, is a terrible tragedy, a holocaust, an evil unimaginable. Yet even in this, God has worked good. And I think, for example, one of the goods he has worked through the evil of abortion is bringing together like-minded Christians to fight against abortion and bringing many of them into the Catholic Church. And so I'm very grateful that I was led into the, the, the pro-life movement. And be, through that, I was led to, by my college friends into the Catholic Church. 
And so I, I just want to give thanks for, to God that he worked a good out of such an evil that is abortion. Okay, well, that's it for today's show. Uh, before you leave, a couple reminders. First of all, please, if you like this podcast, subscribe on iTunes or Stitcher or Spotify or wherever you listen to your, your uh, podcast. Like I said, you can see a list of all my old podcasts at my website, ericsammons.com. There's a link to the podcast. You can see an archive of all of them, the 86 that came before this. You can follow me on Twitter at Eric R. Salmons. Also, you can like me on Facebook. It's just uh, Eric Salmon Swimming Upstream. My public page is there. But I want to thank you all for listening, and let's pray for the end of abortion and pray for many more souls to be brought into the Catholic Church. Until next time, keep swimming against the stream.